and welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and a home for stories about birds. Brought to you by me, Maya Rose Craig, also known as Bird Girl, and supported by Seven Trent Water and Swarovski Optic. As travel restrictions begin to ease, I'm sure some of you are thinking about expanding your birding horizons and exploring new places. I've just had my first proper adventure. I got a tour of one of my all-time favourite nature reserves, Slimbridge in Gloucestershire, just as the team were getting ready to reopen. So, if you're feeling ready to take your birding to the next level, and wondering if a nature reserve is the thing for you, then hopefully you'll enjoy hearing what you could see on a visit there. Also, with more and more of us birding in cities, I'll be hearing about a project that's been set up to discuss what can be done to improve urban natural spaces and make them more accessible. And Jason Singh will be meeting music producer Al Buho, who works with musicians around the world to make music that has raised thousands of pounds towards bird conservation. But first, let's meet someone who, to be honest, I'm seriously impressed, finds the time to be such a keen birder. She's written 11 books, she wrote the BBC One series The Kennedys, she's a scriptwriter behind loads of children's TV classics, and she's acted in TV shows like Miranda and Casualty. She even won Celebrity Masterchef in 2012. She is Emma Kennedy. And I began just by asking her how she got into birds. Um, I, I think it's quite, it was a quite straightforward one for me. Was uh, I had gone up to the Outer Hebrides and I was on Harris and I couldn't see the eagles. And so I went to an RSPB centre that was on the island or it might have been in Lewis, actually, and then bought a pair of binoculars. And while I was in the RSPB shop, I picked up, I was just, look, because I love, I love books. I just absolutely adore books. And I thought, oh, I better get a little bird book so that I know what I'm looking at, because I'm, I'm, I'm a real sucker for, for trying to spot a duck and trying to sp- spot a specific type of duck. And I also picked up a, a, a log book, and something about picking up that logbook just just made me go, ooh, yes, please. Because I love a little challenge. I love a quiet challenge. It's just ticking along. <laughs> yes, there's something about just methodically ticking off spotting birds that's really attractive to me. But I, I always have my little logbook. And um, if I see a bird I've never seen before, it's like a sharp thrill that is like no other. I saw a hoopoe once flying across a school PE ground. It was quite something. And, I, and it was it, like I did a double take and just like, hang on, hang on. That's, a, that's a hoopoe. What the heck? But it was. It was a hoopoe in Hitchin. I love hoopoes. Mm. Um, I guess that sort of brings me on to what some of the best experiences you've had have been while birding or some of your favourite birds. It, that's an interesting question because I think one of the best experiences I've ever had with a bird was actually a very simple one. And it was, there is a church where John Betjamin is buried. And I had got, I was, I, I can't remember now whether where it, whether it's in Cornwall or Devon, but it's down that end of the world. And I'd gone to see his grave and I was sitting in the churchyard and a robin just, and, and I was sort of stretched out on a bench 
with my legs out in front of me and, and crossed. And a little robin just came and sat on the end of my foot. Wow. And sat there for ages, for absolutely ages, and then came and sat on my shoulder. And it was abs- It was unbelievable. But, I mean, I've seen people feed robins from the hand, mm-hmm. and it can be done. But that that was that felt very 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 special on that day, and especially sort of there in that churchyard, mm. it was extraordinary. But in terms of my favourite bird, mm, I mean I love ducks. I just love <laughs> ducks. I love ducks and I love geese. I would really like a pet duck. <laughs> I don't know really what that comes from. I think it might be from watching Babe. And and just really enjoying the duck that was in Bay. But I've just got an incredible fondness for ducks. But in terms of birds, I really like watching. I'm very lucky where I live. I've got we've got a pair of of kites that that fly over the garden all the time, and I think they're beautiful birds. Mm. And I have bird feeders everywhere with every sort of feed you can imagine in it. Um, and we have long-tailed tits and they're lovely. And we've got a, a, a nuthatch that lives in the oak at the end of the garden and that's a beautiful little bird. Um, lots of goldfinches, a um, couple of bullfinches. I, I love all the finches. I, I love watching the small birds on feeders. I think that's that. I could do that all day long. I think the thing that's like striking me is that all the birds that you're describing that you really like are re- all really characterful, or in my head at least, they've all got really big characters. But th- but then I also, you know, it, it, nothing can beat a blackbird full of song at sunset. And there, we have a lot of blackbirds in our garden and there's there's one and he he sits in the same place every evening at around seven o'clock and just sings his heart out. Oh wow! And it's it's just absolutely glorious. But also starlings. We had starlings in the eaves in our roof for a couple of years until we got bird mites and we had to block the hole up because it, I don't know if you've ever had uh, a nest infested with bird mite. Oh, that they no. once the birds have gone, the, the the mites just try and find something that's living. And so they start coming into the house and uh, and all of our, uh, the bedroom ceiling, it was like something out of a horror movie. The bedroom ceiling just started spreading with these with these bird mites that sort of drop onto you. They, they can't live on humans, but they do give you they do give it a good go. And so sadly, we had to block up the hole that the starlings <laughs> were in. But but we, we haven't quite lost out because the starlings that were living in our house are now living in our neighbour's house across the road. So if we, if I sit in the bench in my front garden, I can watch the same starling family going in and out now of the hole in someone else's roof. Before you mentioned the mites, I was going to say I'm very jealous because we never really get starlings in the gardens. But I think you've managed to wrangle it quite well because you've still got the gorgeous views, but the neighbour has to deal with all the mites. Yes. <laughs> but... I'm, I'm ready with the bird mite powder whenever they need it but um i i've I've only seen a a proper murmuration once i i really love watching starlings murmurate and i've seen a couple of small ones over brighton pier but i went to minsmere a couple of years ago and it was just incredible saw a proper proper massive murmuration that just went on for hours it was like looking at a huge blue whale in the sky 
It was incredible. That That's an experience I think everyone should have once, is seeing a, a proper murmuration. It's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience and it's... You can't get your head around it. You can't, you can't even begin to understand how they're doing it. It's, it's extraordinary. Are there any other sites around the UK that you love going to look for birds? Well, uh, yes, I, lo- I like going up to the Lake District I, um, and also up, up to Scotland. And uh, I, I like going places where you know that you're going to see different birds from where you live. So again, you know, I I love going up to to uh, the Outer Hebrides and uh, and into the Cairngorms and places like that where you can see sea eagles and and you know big 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 birds that that you can't see down here. But we 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 got very lucky during lockdown. There was one day in lockdown where we suddenly saw a stork flying over the house. And then we went, what? And then we and then we re- we looked it up online, and and we realised that my uh, my partner took a shot of it, took a photograph of it, and there was a ring on its leg, and we could read the number after we oh, wow. like like you know blew it up, and we discovered that it was one of the stalks that has been been reintroduced, um, and we just happened to be on its flight path that day. It was absolutely brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. But that's the thing, isn't it? Is is if you're not looking up, you miss things all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I I think one of the best birding tips is just, you know, start looking up, start looking around, start seeing the birds that you can see. But you've been a birder for quite a long time. Mm. I would personally class you as quite a dedicated birder. Have you noticed many more people getting interest in birding during lockdown? And... I guess, if so, what advice would you give people to sort of level up their birding skills? Um, yes, I, I, I think a lot of people are reconnecting with nature and also their immediate nature and, and understanding that, you know, to be in nature, you don't necessarily have to be out in the countryside. You, you can actually be anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just about, as I said, looking up. And uh, I think if there's been one positive from from lockdown, and I'm and I'm saying this obviously with with the awareness that that some people have had to spend it entirely on their own, and not necessarily in a property that's had a, a, a garden, but what it has done is is it's forced everybody to sort of reevaluate what's important, I think, and to slow down. Mm. and to understand that the pace of life that we've all become accustomed to in the 21st century isn't necessarily the best way to live your life. Mm. And I think it's really important, in, in, especially at a time when people's mental health especially is so fragile and and we've all become much more aware of, of, of those difficulties. And, it, and it's again, it's, it's, it is the, the pressures and the burdens of living in a modern society mm. is that if you can just set aside, just go for a walk anywhere, just go, you can, and this applies in the city, if you're in the country, just go for a walk and there will be life. There is life all around you. And go to a park, mm. there will be birds. And I think just start doing that and then it, it, just sit and be quiet 
and you'll hear all the birdsong. I mean, I, I absolutely love birdsong. Mm. I could sit and listen to birdsong all day long. It is one of the single most calming things. And then start looking at the birds and then you'll think, hmm, hang on, what, what's that? And I think that's, that's the only question that you need to start pulling you into birding is, hmm, what's that bird? And once you start looking up what that bird is, then that's it. There's no escape then. <laughs> There's no escape. Yeah, I have heard of birding being likened slightly to a cult or something like that, where it sort of drags you in and doesn't let you escape. Yeah. Because I know I definitely sort of spread it around. I'm talking about birds all the time to people who know me. They get very sick and tired of it. Um, but have you spread birding onto any of your friends or family? Well, famously, Susan Kalman. And, you know, she hasn't looked back, which is rather tremendous. But every single time somebody comes to visit, and this is obviously before lockdown when people won't visit, but, you know, they would sit in the garden and they'd be astonished by the amount of birds that were coming into the garden. And all you've got to do is is is, is either go for a walk for them and go, oh, yeah, look, oh, look at that little stone chat. And they go, what? How do you know what that is? And you go, well, I just know that that's a stone chat. <laughs> And then they're rather impressed. And then they sort of want to know what the birds are and, 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 and what that red-breasted bird is that isn't a robin. And it's just that. It's just, it's just piquing people's curiosity, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And understanding the world around you and, and being able to look at something and know what it is. There's something very comforting in that. Yeah, like I I joke sometimes about sort of indoctrinating people into bird watching, but I genuinely think that once you get <laughs> people out and about, um, they sort of fall in love fall in love with it by themselves, and you're not, you know, you don't literally need to indoctrinate people like that, I guess. No, but like like we were talking about, I think a lot of people have gotten into it during lockdown. I know even I have been able to spend much more time birding and stuff. But do you think that birding's helped you? Um, during the last year? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I have, uh, I mean, I'm sitting at my, my desk now in, in my office and, and I have my office set up so I'm, I'm looking out at the garden and I have positioned um, feeders sort of so that, so they run round like that so wherever I look I can, I can see, I can see birds. So I'm looking out now, there's a bullfinch on the trellis I can see two goldfinches, there's a greenfinch, there's a parakeet that's sitting on the oak branch above it. He'll be coming down any minute now. I've got some jackdaws up there, pigeons, obviously that goes without saying wood pigeons. Um, uh, you know, there it is. That the, the wood. I have a woodpecker who, who comes down onto the, the feeders just in front of me on a every single day. So it's, it's, it's just a delight. It's a real delight. It, it's it's entertainment for free. And also, I, I, I just like the idea of sharing my living space with a lot of with a lot of living things. Mm. You know, we've we've got mice running, running riot <laughs> in the flower beds. And I don't care because I love them. You know, like some people would be horrified if they go, oh, no, we've got mice. Well, yeah, they're lovely. <laughs> they're absolutely adorable. We've got a shrew that comes sort of they're visiting. I've had a grass snake in the garden, got toads, got frogs. 
it's all you know it's it's all part of being in the natural world that 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 you know that that we're in and enjoying it and not just thinking that you have to live in a sterilized environment in which only humans can exist absolutely i'm glad you mentioned the mice your garden just sounds gorgeous like i'm loving all the different birds you've got going on but obviously lockdown is fingers crossed, ending soon and we're going to be able to go out Mm. and to look for some birds. So I was wondering if you could, I suppose, talk me through how you'd approach a big day out of birding. Oh, gosh. I mean, I would love to go back to... I love going to Minsmere. That's probably my favourite place to go outside of Scotland. But what I do is if I'm going out for for a day and I know I'm going to like an RSPB centre or or somewhere where I know there's going to be birds, I've got my little rucksack, get your flask, homemade sandwiches in a plastic bag, (laughs) fizzy drink, bit of chocolate, and off you go. And off you go. I mean, I love just spending hours outdoors. I I think it's that as well. It's not just the, you know, will I see some nice birds? It's about being outdoors. Mm. And it's about nice walks. And, and I mean, you all know this, it, it, there is a vast difference between the birds that you will see if you're going for a wood walk or you're going for a sea walk or you're going for a marsh walk or you're going to be walking across a common or a meadow. Every single environment has a different set of birds that go with it. For me, it's exactly that variety that makes the loosening of restrictions so exciting. I can't wait to visit different habitats again and see birds I haven't been able to see during lockdown. We'll talk more to Emma soon, but first I want to thank you for all the stories and questions that you've been sending in on social media. Hermione asked the Get Birding community to identify a bird that was staring her chickens down. It turned out to be a sparrowhawk. Aidy told us that he went on a walk around Cropston in Leicestershire, his first since the second lockdown started, and that he saw 28 different bird species. Nika heard a chiff-chaff, blackcap and song thrush on her morning walk, and Colin said he finally managed to see a common sandpiper, which had been eluding him every time he went to Billingham Beck in Stockton-on-Tees. If you're a regular listener, you might be wondering when you'll hear an update on the birds in my patch. And I'm glad to say that everyone's favourite birds, the ravens, are absolutely thriving with a very healthy nest full of chicks. But the big news is that I got to visit a nature reserve that's one of my favourites. I grew up going there all the time and I was so, so excited to go back. And I did some recording there for you guys. It's called Slimbridge and it's in Gloucestershire not far from where I grew up, so I've got a lot of childhood memories there. It's run by WWT, the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, and it's a really big site with 120 acres. It's made up of one huge lake called the South Lake, and then lots of other bits of wetland where you can see amazing wading birds like avocets, many of which are breeding this year. You can also see beautiful iridescent kingfishers, swans migrating there for the winter, and even flamingos. Kate Fox helps to look after the site, and she told me it's not just what you can see at Slimbridge, but how well you can see it. 
as well as the variety, it's how close you can get to everything. It's not like, because most places you'll go birding, particularly waders, they'll be out in the distance. And if you haven't got the, the equipment like a, like a binoculars or a telescope, it can be quite difficult to kind of see them and have that connection. Most nature reserves have hides, which are like buildings where you can watch the wildlife from without them seeing you. Hides are really amazing for getting close views of wildlife without disturbing them because, I mean, the clues in the name, you are hidden from those birds. So you can see out, but because it's kind of quite dark inside and there's just this little window, it's, it's perfect to just get really close encounters with these species without causing them any disturbance. I met Kate and Dave Painter, the reserve manager, and they took a break to give me a tour. The sun was shining and the place seemed like it was bursting with energy. I feel like spring's come early a bit to Slimbridge. It feels very full of life. It's definitely in full swing now. <laughs> I think they've got singing birds everywhere. I mean, even today you can see all, all the insects flying about, so it's no wonder that all the, like the black caps, shift chaffs, willow warblers, they've got a lot to feed on. They don't have to spend as much time looking for food, and so they can sit up there singing their hearts out. With it being spring, one of the key species has just flown off for the summer, the Buick swans. So they're a, a winter visitor, they come from their breeding grounds in Arctic Russia. Mm. Um, I think we had our first pair arrive last autumn. It was actually happened to be the day after the, uh, the, the second lockdown. Mm. Um, so yeah, we were just kind of out here kind of commenting on how, how sad it was that we didn't have people about and then one of the wardens martin was like oh there's some buicks and that was it was amazing actually watching them come in like i mean they could have flown non-stop since the netherlands which is wow. crazy <laughs> yeah um but yes yeah, so i think our numbers peaked i think maybe around 80 or 90 um this winter and they they spend their time uh, mostly on the rushy and they have morning, afternoon, and then also occasionally evening feeds. Um, so we go out with a big wheelbarrow full of grain, <laughs> um, and then in the day they tended to head out onto the tack piece. Um, but yeah, you'd get such amazing views, like if you're in the Peng Observatory, um, mm -hmm. and be able to look out, and they come really close. But they're yeah. just—I think they're just the most wonderful swan. They just make the the most happy noises, like a really bubbly sort of. I won't do an impression of it. <laughs> kind of like a poop poop. No, that's awful. <laughs> but yeah, they were they were wonderful. I'm in one of the hides at the moment. Um, but I'm just listening to how noisy the ducks are. It's amazing, and they're so close to the hide. You've got them waddling right in front of you. You've got a couple of coots doing what looks like a fight to the death. Um, and you've got a couple of gulls just sort of swimming atop of the water looking very peaceful in comparison to everything else. It's classic Slimbridge and it's lovely. That's a great view of Avocet's feeding actually. We walked into the South Lake and we can see these Avocets feeding like metres from the, from the windows in the hide and such an iconic species, such a beautiful and like charismatic species to watch and to be able to see them kind of in plain sight without any kind of equipment, it just makes it so accessible, I think. And also because we've got guides in the hides and they are so passionate, so enthusiastic that I think it really adds to the experience that people have because you don't need to be an expert and they're, they're more than happy to kind of share what they've seen, share their knowledge. 
just watching these avocets here. If you watch them sweeping their bills through the water and, and then they're swallowing. Look, the swallow sweep, 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 swallow, sweep. <laughs> just gives you some idea how rich a wetland is. You know, that's a, every time it swallows, it's a little red larvae that it's swallowing there. So it just gives you some idea how much productivity there is in what looks like a, a mucky old muddy pool. Incredibly <laughs> rich, full of food. The most important thing is that you enjoy yourself, even if you don't know the difference between kind of like a, a mallard and a, and a shell duck. You can still look at them and think, that mallard's got a really nice coloured head, or that other duck is just making some really funny noises. <laughs> kind of, you still get the same enjoyment, even if you don't know the exact name of it. Just make up your own name for it, that's what I do. I call oyster catchers Eric's. There was one at uh, the little town colony in Ches at Chesil Beach and he was really, really loud. So we called him Noisy Eric and whenever they fly over now, I'm like, oh, there's a Noisy Eric. It just sticks. <laughs> the next place we visited was the Kingfisher Hide, one of my favourites. Kingfishers dig tunnels into riverbanks to make their nests and they make them really deep. Yes, I think they, they dig them to about kind of 60 to 90 centimetres, which is quite a long way. Yeah. Um, I guess like any nest you think is like a cup, but if you're digging a hole into a bank, you don't want to dig that, lay your eggs and then find them kind of rolling out and plopping into the water. So they actually <laughs> kind of compensate for that by having like a little bit of a, a dip at the bottom of the nest chamber, just so they don't kind of roll out because you don't, don't want kingfisher eggs <laughs> kind of floating about everywhere. Yeah, I think that's so cool though. I mean, kingfishers would quite often have like two, two to three broods a year. So it's actually when the young are about, I think they only allow them to be on their territory like an average of kind of four days after they fledge until they oh, really? kind of kick them out. Yeah, I guess. I, mean, I think, I mean, they, they feed them up a lot as they grow. I think they can have up to 120 fish a day kind of that they wow. feed the whole brood. Um, but yeah, obviously, if, if you're a, a parrot kingfisher, it's, it's great, you're really proud of your young, but if you want to make some more, you don't want them around stealing all the food. <laughs> so, so they yeah. kind of, uh, yeah, get them, get them to move about. Whilst you're waiting for the kingfisher, it's not just a matter of waiting for the kingfisher. This has got to be one of the best little spots in the country to actually see the Chatties Warbler that we heard singing there. I can't see it at the moment, but it's there. It's right there somewhere. This is one of the best spots to actually get to see a really elusive bird. And they're just so loud. Oh, Chatties so Warblers loud. are just so loud. Yeah. I think that's, that's the thing about warblers as well, is kind of, if, if you look at them, they're fairly drab looking birds, quite kind of plain compared to something like a goldfinch, but that's because like they can rely on their song. Um, yeah. Warblers generally can. They're, their song is so kind of loud and exciting that a female will hear that and then she'll kind of come over. Um, so it's not like you kind of need to stand there being like, oh, look how, look how pretty I am. <laughs> we kept on hearing Chetty's warbler right in front of us in the reed bed, which is such a bubbly sound. And the first black caps of the year singing as we were walking down the walkway. And you could see a few lapwing displaying in the bottom new piece and the top new piece, which are the fields to the right of the kingfisher hide um, as you're looking towards the kingfisher bank. And the lapwings are actually starting to nest now, so we should hopefully have some little baby lapwings running around soon as well, which would be brilliant. Someone once, I can't get it out of my head, someone described their call as, it sounds like a Nintendo game. So whenever I hear them, particularly when the males are displaying, I just think of, I think he called them Nintendo birds. And it is just so 
it's so right it's so accurate they just sound like they're kind of like flying around collecting little coins and i'm just in awe of them they're brilliant <laughs> one of the things that the wardens here are so great at is they must have somehow kind of done a bit of a meditation session and got into the mind of all these migrating birds and for example i mean the avocets i think the wardens saw an opportunity they were like these guys look really cool and i think we can get them to stay <laughs> So kind of from then they did quite a lot of work, I think kind of creating some islands on the Rushy. So if you if you visit, you'll see these kind of little pebbly islands that have been created to help provide nesting habitats. And around the edge, there's like a concrete edge to it. And on the wader scrape, the lower part of the Rushy, they've actually kind of been working on breaking up this concrete and lifting it up because that then reveals the mud that the baby avocets can then go around and root around and find all this yummy worms and fly larvae and things. One of the most amazing sights at Slimbridge is the world's tallest flying bird, the crane. Cranes vanished from the UK, but are now slowly returning thanks to the work of conservation groups like the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust. Cranes became extinct in Britain 400 years ago. A small population started up on the east coast, partly introduced birds, partly wild birds. That's been expanding slowly. So the decision was made to try and speed up that process by reintroducing cranes to the west of England, especially to the fantastic habitat on the Somerset levels. We took eggs from nests in Germany. They were hatched and reared here at Slimbridge and then released onto the Somerset levels. They learnt to fly on the Somerset levels and that becomes their then sort of natal uh, area. So we were really delighted and actually some of those came back to Slimbridge and we've got those five or six pairs here now. But it kind of caught us on the hop. We didn't expect them to be wanting to breed here. The Slimbridge team work hard to make habitats that they hope will be irresistible to the birds. They've been working with partners like Seven Trent Water to fund new projects. We were looking to create crane nesting sites, uh, do more work associated with new areas of, of ditches, new ponds, what we call paleo channels, which is opening up a big wide channel through the middle of three or four fields to create a big in-field water feature and um, it's starting to look good already. The channel's there, matured really quickly through last summer. It looks like it's been there forever. It's being used by a fantastic range of birds already, things like the great white egrets especially, the egrets generally using that area, herons as, as well. And the crane islands are starting to mature. They, they've mm. not shown any interest in them yet this year, but we're hoping that in the future we might be able to get another pair of cranes nesting oh, nesting here at Simbridge because we've created these nest sites and very importantly safe roosting sites for the cranes mm. as well so it's really opened up the landscape here and made it more accessible for the birds that we're associated with those huge flocks of, of winter waterfowl. So that was the nicest day I've had in a really long time it was a really nice time of year to come as well you can hear the birds all singing their hearts out around the car park as I record this and I think I went with the two particular birds that I really wanted to see and those were the cranes and the kingfishers and unfortunately we didn't manage to see the kingfisher which is sort of part of the fun of birding really if you knew you were going to see something every time you went to look for it 
I don't think I'd have half as good a time. But also, on a really practical note, I just wasn't able to sit in the hide and wait for long enough. So I think I'm definitely going to be coming back and trying again once Slimbridge opens up to the public. The cranes, um, Dave and Kate were taking me into every hide along the path to see if the cranes were in each field. And it wasn't really happening, we weren't seeing the cranes and I did desperately want to see them, especially because they might be nesting around the site. And I was feeling a bit sad that I hadn't managed to see them and then literally, as I was packing my stuff into the car, um, two cranes flew over the car park and I got gorgeous views. They flew right out, they settled on a distant field and it felt like the perfect ending to a wonderful day. Nature reserves like Slimbridge are brilliant places to see birds that you just wouldn't see at your local park or in your garden. But some nature reserves can be difficult to access if you don't have a car. So it's more and more important that we put just as much effort into making our cities attractive to birds too. It's also easy to assume that as soon as restrictions ease off, we'll all be leaping off our sofas. But for some people, it might take a bit more time to adjust. This is Yatunde Kahinde. In lockdown, a lot of people have stayed at home and been on things like social media, for example. And I think as long as we don't fall into that trap of social media being that escapism from the natural life and wildlife, I think that's first off. So things have become so habitual, so normal to do things within the home. I think I'd be proud of anyone who just goes on a walk every day. And I think that is enough, you know, having been in lockdown for so long. Yatunde is a 19-year-old geography student and she's working with the Natural History Museum, chairing a youth advisory panel that discusses people's access to nature. We work with 12 young people from diverse, you know, ethnically and cultural backgrounds. And in that, we have discussions that try and encourage the awareness that there firstly is an inequality of access to nature, but also what do we do about this? And I think in those discussions, we've identified that it's partly the individual to improve their access to nature by dedicating energy towards it. But it's also on, you know, local councils and people who have the means to try and improve degraded spaces or try and maintain the quality of these urban spaces that are so beneficial to our health and our well-being. So... The young people decided on three particular asks that they want to convey. So the first ask would be about community consultation and trying to bridge the gap between local councils and communities. And there's also the ask of trying to improve access to big nature. So not only local spaces, but those big and, you know, majestic nature that is really well-funded and well-managed and is incredibly aesthetic. And also... The third ask is to try and improve biodiversity and biodiversity in other areas so people can benefit off of what nature can provide. Mm. Something I've been, I guess, figuring out for myself is just how much of a privilege it is to be able to go out into green spaces and to access nature. Like I know in Bristol, at least where I'm from, there are green spaces all over the city, but they're so much nicer in the really well-off areas. And as soon as you get into, like, poorer areas, um, they're really, like, 
degraded and they're not like those really nice natural spaces that you want to hang out in. and I could never really figure out why and I totally think that creating really nice urban green spaces is so so important especially at the moment especially with lockdown yeah so nature and humans are too often divided as if they're completely separate when really there's such an interconnection so what I try to do is not divide humans and nature so much because I think when we do that we can consider climate change and the lack of biodiversity as nature's issue and not our issue when in reality environmental issues are inherently social issues and they definitely influence one another Yeah, and um, could you tell me a little bit about how you got into nature in the first place? Yeah, so I got into nature when I was about in year nine. My geography teacher, he just recommended that people should go out and litter pick. And naturally, you know, he was met with a lot of sighs and a lot of negativity. But I thought it would be a good opportunity. And me and my friends, we decided to go litter picking with our teacher and another company. And in that, I just became interested in nature because I just looked at humans' impact on nature. And I realised that we can improve nature or we can destroy nature, essentially. So that experience was very illuminating and it set a lot of things in stone for me. Was it unusual I guess growing up for the kids around you to be into nature? Yeah I think it was unusual. For me personally it was my culture in a sense and also just my natural upbringing. My family being more of an indoor family so my mum she would encourage me to you know focus on my schoolwork and try and get that done. I was quite active and sporty but that was never really engaging with nature. A lot of people around my area did not engage with nature that much and generally you know would stay at home or working at least that's what I did and I know a lot of friends who did the same. There's also socioeconomic factors that contribute so people who may not have the access to nature because they don't have the money to travel to these big and better quality green spaces and so I think there's a whole host of factors and it's something that I've been very personally interested in. Were there any particular I guess places within London that you really liked going to? Yeah so locally I really like going to the woods near my area Some people might think it's dangerous, but I go during the daytime and I sort of just like to explore that area um, just because it's very well managed in that particular area. But speaking of well managed, I also love Kew Gardens. Every time I go, I'm amazed and I'm wondered by something new. I noticed one thing that you said was that some people think that your local woods are dangerous. Do you think that's sort of touching on a wider issue where people are... I'd know a bit afraid of going somewhere that's a bit new or a bit alien. Yeah, I think naturally people are more comfortable with what's known to them. And the woods are so vast and expansive. It can seem really just scary and like a dangerous space because of how big and wide and unknown it is to some people. So I think definitely there is that aspect that can prevent people from going into these spaces. And I don't blame them for that, you know. And even me, I generally go during daytime. I wouldn't go at nighttime. And so I think places that are more degraded 
I can't imagine that people feel particularly safe going into those areas or comfortable. And because people are naturally inclined to do things that they're more comfortable with, I think that definitely adds another layer. It's a barrier to accessing these spaces that can reveal so much. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And obviously it's a really difficult issue, but how do you think we can start to break down those barriers going forward? How we can sort of lower that barrier a bit more is awareness and I think awareness of some of the local spaces and trying to take their personal responsibility to look and search for these spaces so I think just that awareness can be such a determining factor of if someone goes to a certain place. Yeah because it's funny when I first started my campaigning and stuff a lot of people told me that there are just you know, certain groups of people who just aren't interested in going out into nature, who can't see the appeal of it. And um, it's funny because, like, years later, we've been doing tree planting days, my charity, for the past few days, and we almost had too many people. Like, you know, we were supporting them getting out for the first time, and so many people were saying that they didn't even know that this space that was maybe 20 minutes from their house existed. So I totally think that helping people get to know the land and the landscape around them is so, so important, as well as, you know, it can be quite intimidating going into green spaces, like countryside for the first time. And I totally think that supporting people into doing that is really important as well. Yeah, I completely resonate with that because the local woods near my area, a 15 to 20 minute walk, I didn't know existed for the longest time. And now I frequent that area so much that it's, I can't even believe that I didn't know it was there in the first place. And I can imagine that other people, you know, wherever you are, if you, you know, extend your walk by five, ten minutes, can discover some of the hidden wonders around their areas as well. So I definitely resonate with not really knowing initially where things are, but really taking that responsibility to go out and search and explore, essentially, which I know is not everyone's taste, but exploring is what revealed so much for me in my local area that I didn't know existed. Thank you, Yutunde. Now, regular listeners will know that we like to give you a little challenge when you're out birding, what we like to call your bird to watch. And this week it's chosen by Emma Kennedy. Do you know what? I, I didn't know this was coming, but I think I'm going to choose the parakeet because... This is a bird that some people really don't like because obviously it's become a little bit aggressive in this country and and they're very noisy and squawky, uh, but they are absolutely beautiful. And if you put up feeders, I mean, it never fails to astonish me that I have... I mean, I, I yesterday I had six parakeets on my feeders and they're just the most beautiful beautiful bird and and the long blue they have this amazing blue in in the in their tail but if you can get one to come to your garden it, i mean it, it they're absolutely gorgeous i'm just looking up now i've got a kite circling um up up above oh, lovely. Yeah, look, the wood the wood pigeon is currently eyeing my broad beans why are you wanna? Um, so yes, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the parakeet. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a great. Try and, sit, try, try and spot a parakeet. And for people who don't know, I think you get parakeets in. Is it just in London that you get them, or are they spreading? They're south, basically. They're they're south of Kew, I think. <laughs> <laughs> south and west. Uh, we, but we've got a lot here down in Surrey, so that they are spreading. Um, everyone else, uh, keep your eyes out for a woodpecker. That's my one of my other favourite garden birds that you see every night. It's rare, but when you see it, it you feel it feels special. So keep an eye out for that as well. Definitely, and you of course can hear their woodpeckers drumming echoing throughout the countryside this time of year. It's one of my favourite things. Mm. I have one final question for yes. you today, and it's a question I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and that is, of course. If you're a bird, what bird would you be? Oh, oh, crumbs! <laughs> Do you know what? I think I'm going to go for blackbird because they're the best singers. Oh, nice. Okay. I just love how they sing their hearts out, and I do like a show tune. So I, that that would segue in quite nicely. Or I'd be a crow because they can hold a grudge for twenty five years. Really? Yes. If if you annoy a crow or a raven, it will remember you forever. That is a brilliant fact. Thank you to have ended this on. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant speaking with you today. My pleasure. Now, I'm thrilled to say musician and nature beatboxer Jason Singh is back again with another story of birdsong inspiring music. Today's story is about a project that's raising thousands to protect endangered birds. It's organised by Robin Perkins. What I'd like to start off with is your name's Robin, but your artist name is El Bujo. Is that correct? Yep. So I was christened with a bird name and then adopted a second bird name because El Bujo means the owl in Spanish. And why did you choose the owl? Uh, so when I started making music, it was it's always a difficult decision to kind of choose the name and I thought a bird would make sense because you know birds are kind of my thing and then I thought you know a kind of owls are mysterious birds of the night there's a lot of mythology and a lot of cultures hold them in you know they're, they're like special birds and then I thought if you say it in Spanish it also sounds a bit more exotic and fun and different sure <laughs> but it's funny whenever people say it in English I get a lot of buho el buho buho and people don't really, a lot of people don't know what it means. And they're like, oh, it means the owl. Oh, okay. Oh. So, uh, yeah. So it must spark conversations. It's a good it's a good conversation starter. People don't realise. And then they're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And it means the owl. And when you say birding is your thing, what do you mean? Yes, I grew up in Glossop, in the north of England, in the Peak District, in a family of nature enthusiasts, I suppose you could say. My mum worked the RSPB and then in kind of wildlife conservation in the UK and so as growing up our holidays would be like nature holidays which you know at the time <laughs> when you're like a 12 year old you think god oh, this is terrible but now looking back um, you know it marked me as it's kind of part of my part of growing up and yeah you know memories of going camping going looking for birds going on birding holidays uh, and it was always part of my life as a childhood and it you know it's kind of stuck with me and so you know you kind of reject that when you're a, a teenager and then you kind of come full circle and go back to your roots and you're like okay this is part of my identity it's made me who I am. And was your kind of musical unfoldings happening at that point as well? So I, I came a bit later so I started 
making music when I was at university in Glasgow. So I studied Latin American studies at university. I started making music focused on Latin American folk mixed with electronica. And as I got older, I started to, you know, dig into these roots and think, you know, how do, how could I involve natural sound into that same process? Um, and started exploring what would happen if I made a track using a bird song. That was the first EP I released. And can I ask you as well, like, you used to be a Greenpeace campaigner. Yeah, so I left university with my Hispanic studies degree and was like, well, it's not much use. Uh, I was lucky enough to get an internship in communications at Greenpeace International in Amsterdam and ended up working on the climate campaign and trying to convince big technology companies to commit to renewable energy, so like Samsung, Apple. And then I moved to Mexico and worked on the like national water pollution campaign in Mexico. And it kind of gave me this training in activism during that time. And were you making music at the same time? Yes. Yeah. So when I was living in Mexico, that's when my music took off. So I released an EP in Mexico inspired by cenotes, which are like these underground rivers in, in the south of Mexico. And it was the EP that uh, was the start of my career. You've made two compilation albums featuring artists that use birdsong, a guide to the birdsong of South America and a guide to the birdsong of Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean. Can you tell me the story of the idea for that? Yes, and the idea came about when I was living in Amsterdam, funnily enough, (laughs) working for Greenpeace at the time. And I had made an EP of my own music using the song of four South American birds. And then I kind of thought, how do we make this more activist-y? How do we use music to kind of deliver a message, right? And the idea came to me to do the same concept with endangered bird species. So take the song of a specific species and ask a music producer to make a track with the aim to raise awareness about these species, raise funds for their protection, and engage and involve artists from the region to have a connection to a bird from their country. We did a crowdfunding to fund it. And then it was released on vinyl and digitally, and 100% of the profits went to conservation NGOs from in South America. And that was the first volume, and it grew from there, basically. And was there a kind of, when you heard the sounds of the birds, was there a relationship in terms of the producers that then you then chose to approach? So the artists were primarily people making kind of traditional folk music mixed with electronica. Because that was also our, my kind of space and it seemed to fit with the project. And so what we did was we sent each artist three bird species. So it was like pictures, background, the threats and the songs, of course. And then they chose the one that they most identified with. And then after that, we sent them high-quality audio recordings of the bird song and said, you have complete creative freedom to make a track inspired by this bird and by its song. That is fantastic, man. And it's very interesting listening to the, um, to the guide to the bird song of South America that there is this... You can feel the story of, of, of different places within it, but there's a kind of... The way that it all comes together is really holistic. It feels very united, do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like it's disjointed from different people, you know, from different places. It feels like this is really beautiful unity within all the tracks. And, I mean, that's how I came to, to learn about Dengue, 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 was from, from that album. 
um, and you know fantastic guys you know producers but it's a really interesting process that you've taken because for me there was very much about the structure of the rhythms of the bird song in this one which makes it a really unique piece of work yeah and I think what I realized through through doing this as well is that each producer approached it in a different way right so some producers literally just put the bird song on the bottom and played over the top of it uh, some producers took it and turned the bird song into like a melody. So Dengue Dengue Dengue, for example, like repitched the bird song and made like a different melody out of it. Um, somebody from the second one was like, oh, this sounds like a shaker, the, the, my bird. So they just pitched it up and left it as like a rhythmic shaker. And so it's just also fascinating to see, especially with modern production techniques, how much you can play with, manipulate, copy, repitch the sound. We got some some people saying, oh, you should leave the birdsong as it is, which some artists did, uh, kind of purists, no birdsong purists. <laughs> and other people saying, wow, it's so fantastic that you can manipulate and play a birdsong as if it were an instrument. How do you feel about that, kind of the purist against the renegades? <laughs> uh, I, I understand both sides. I like, I mean, what we are thinking of doing now and for the future ones is releasing the birdsong on their own. So just like the bird song and alongside the, the tracks, we wanted to give complete creative freedom to the artists to just do whatever they want with it. So in the future, I think we're going to release, okay, you can just listen to the bird song and immerse yourself in the pure song of these birds and the interpretation of that song or the, the collaboration uh, with the artists. Listening to your albums, you can imagine it on a dance floor and you can hear it in your own space and both they translate really beautifully in terms of audiences how have they responded to hearing birds you know albums like this i mean it's been fascinating because i think what we discovered is i mean there's a bunch of different audiences right but we had a lot of people who came into the project from the music and who were maybe fans of the artist fans of the music fans of the scene and discovered the birds but we're really into the music, right? And then a bunch of people who are like super birders, you know, like tickers and like really from the birding world who came into the project through the birds and discovered the music. Um, and just seeing how people reacted to it in different ways and it, what was fascinating for us is that it managed to reach a much broader audience than we kind of had expected. And, you know, it reached those two audiences, which sometimes traditional NGOs and this is my experience in Greenpeace is that Sometimes it's very difficult to break out of your own world, you know, and you just talk into the same people. And what the power that music and a kind of creativity and even the artwork that we use for this means that it reaches way more people. And so you're able to tell the same story, but in a different, more engaging, inspiring way. And, you know, we reached, for example, in, in the US, the Audubon Society picked it up and we reached a load of like retired American bird watchers. You know, which we didn't expect and they all wanted CDs. We didn't make any CDs because we don't own buy CDs anymore. And suddenly there was like all these people, people emailing saying, hey, well, why don't you make CDs? I'd love to buy a CD. I mean, the thing was that I was really beautiful about the project as well as a lot of artists went quite deeply into the process, into their birds, like spent a lot of time, came out of it being like, what else can I do? You know, I didn't even realise this was happening in my own country. Um, and I think you feel that in a lot of the tracks that there's an investment from the artists being inspired by this being challenged to do something differently and, and it comes through I think in the, in the music 
leads me on to this question here now. It says that you're making these albums at a time when the birds featured are endangered by the rapid disappearance of entire ecosystems. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The, the whole project's kind of goal was that these are emblematic species, right? They're not necessarily the 10 most endangered, but what they represent is the kind of human impact on biodiversity. You know, if you look at why these species are disappearing, it's because of habitat destruction, it's because of deforestation, it's because of the impact of climate change, it's because of human development, um, or, you know, trapping for the illegal pet trade, which happens a lot for kind of the parrots species and the more beautiful or uh, singing ones. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, yeah, we're raising funds for conservation initiatives, we're also trying to put on the map that, you know, disappearing species is representative of what we're doing to the planet and the need to rethink our impact that we're not the masters of the universe but we're part of an ecosystem right we're part of the natural world and we need to find a balance and live within that not totally destroy it which is unfortunately the path we're on and the path we've been on for, for many years but as i said before you know art and music has a role to play for me in that in you know, telling the story in a different way and perhaps a more inspiring, engaging, beautiful way that there is a need to protect these species and the way we do it is through protecting the habitat, right? Or, or changing how we, how we interact with the planet. Could you pick a track that we could end on that's a favourite of yours? What would you choose? Yeah, I would... I think maybe we'll go for one from the first album. Go for maybe Cappuccino Pecho Blanco by Barrio Lindo, um, which is one of my favourites uh, from from both of the albums. For me, it's it's the way the bird song fits within the track. Uh, it just feels so natural, like it's not forced. It's like an element within the track that just fits and works. And again, like I said before, I think there's something behind the track that you can't put your finger on that just works. You know, either through how the artist was inspired by it or what and yeah, it's just one of my, one of my, one of my favourite tracks. I think from both, so I think it's a good one to end with. It sounds fantastic, man, and wishing you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was Robin Perkins talking to Jason Singh. If you want to support the project, you can find both albums. A Guide to Birdsong of South America and A Guide to Birdsong of Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean on Bandcamp. This is the last in the series and I want to thank you all so much for listening and for all the comments and stories you've been sending to us at Get Birding Pod that have built our little birding community. I'm Maya Rose Craig, also known as Bird Girl, and you've been listening to Get Birding, supported by Seven Trent Water and Swarovski Optic. This is a Peanut and Crumb production. Happy birding! <laughs> <laughs>